Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today is a really special episode. It's about the future of delivery when drones take over all road-based deliveries. I'm talking to Bobby, the founder of Mana, one of the global leaders in the drone space and probably the most commercial one. What's so fascinating about Bobby is that he started coding at age 13, almost 40 years ago. And since then, he has founded and scaled three different businesses to huge successes. Bobby will talk about how he gained confidence to take risk and start businesses at an early age, what he learned from business number one and two to make number three even more successful, and how the multi-trillion pound drone market will evolve over the next 10 years. Bobby, you started a couple of successful companies, and of course, we have to talk about by when Gusto customers can get their recipes by drone. But first, um, tell me about your upbringing. Uh, well, I'm a programmer. That's my trade. I've been programming since I'm 13 years old, which is 39 years ago, which sounds crazy. Uh, I still feel very young, but programmer my whole life. And I've been building technology companies, mostly in the travel technology space, certainly for the last 30 years. And, and I've, you know, kind of a risk taker. So I've always, build companies to sell or to trade, you know, and I've done that four or five times now, you know, built and sold companies through direct sales to other companies or to private equity. And, and then most recently with MANA through uh, VC uh, Venture Capital. So yeah, I'm techie, love tech, love, still write a lot of code and still very much involved in the engine room. But, you know, now kind of scaling up businesses and tech teams is what I do well, I think. And how does one start coding at age thir 13? And I guess yeah. also like, how does one start businesses, you know, become a serial entrepreneur? Like what, what has like shaped your thinking in the early days? And um, curiosity, you know, when I was 13, I was buying all the computer magazines, computer, the home computer industry was taking off and it was, it was very uncool, but for me, very, very interesting to, learn how computers worked you know obviously video games were around then coin ops you know space invaders and and things like that and i have a curious mind you know technically curious mind and i i wanted to learn about you know how that all worked and definitely with one eye being a kid growing up in 1980s in ireland where no one could get a job technology seemed like a good way to to build a livelihood as well so with one eye on my future and one eye on having a bit of fun and learning, you know, I went into computers and I got, you know, I put the money together to buy a computer ZX Spectrum actually. 
and I mm-hmm. I wrote a letter to the to the, to actually Zilog Corporation in the States that produced a CPU for that device, and they sent me a specification for it, and I, I taught myself. Uh, it's not difficult to program. It's difficult to be an experienced programmer, but it's not difficult to learn to program. And I just I, it was a drug for me. I was just so obsessed with learning programming and building you know games. I ended up working for Nintendo building video games for them and that you know that was kind of i taught myself how to do that i got my job when i was 17 i never went to university and i was making money as a kid and and that was liberating also it put my mind at ease you know i could have a future and and to this day i still love to learn i'm still learning new technologies i still experiment with things it's a passion and but but so too is is building companies that the two work very well together. They they certainly do. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess like, did your parents encourage you to take risk? Like, what's the environment that that you know allowed you to think like that? That's funny. I've never been asked that question, but I'm delighted to answer it. So my mother pushed me, you know, to do my best. You know, not put pressure on me, but saw that I had this interest, and she bought me the computer. And we didn't have a lot of money in the family. The computer was a big dent in the family mm-hmm. budget. She kind of encouraged me. So she was definitely the, the supporting parent. My father had been a professional footballer his, you know, in oh, his wow. career. And and I was a good footballer. I was playing for a serious team over here in Ireland. And, and he thought that my future should be football. And I did love football. And I still, I still play football. Not very well, but I still play it. And he hated that I locked myself in my bedroom and was <laughs> learning computers. And we fought over it, you know, it was... Uh, he didn't understand the world. He was not a businessman and not a technology guy. And he, he didn't he didn't understand why I would want to do anything that was like the computers, not like what the hell is, you know, he just didn't get it. And we fought over it. So it was kind of a conflict in the house. And I actually left home probably because of that, just to get out of the way of that conflict. And, and, I, and I, I ended up living in the South of Ireland where that's where I started to work for Nintendo and kind of, He came around pretty quickly when he saw, you know, that I was getting a wage check and it's all good now, you know, but yeah, it was interesting. Definitely my mother is the one that made it all happen. I think you've done okay. Um, (laughs) So it must have felt quite daunting, age 17, you're getting an amazing job at Nintendo, you're getting paid, but you still decided against university. I, I can only imagine your parents put some pressure on you to go to uni. Like at what stage did you feel like this is 100% the right decision, makes perfect sense? Like how did you build that confidence? Yeah, I knew I knew immediately, you know, when I actually could program and I could make things happen. And I, like I had built video games in my bedroom, I knew how to do it. And I knew I uh, probably usual cocky teenager. I thought I was the best programmer <laughs> in the world, that the world had ever seen, you know, but I was confident. And, and I also, more importantly, I was confident that I could translate that into in earnings, you know, and I could make money. I could support myself. So then I said, well, what do I go to university for? they can teach me nothing in, in inverted commas. You know, they certainly, certainly you don't go to, to a university to learn how to program. You, you go to be educated and to be matured. I, I'm not a good learner. You know, I, I'd fail in an environment where you have to read books and you have to go through a process and you have to be measured and pass an exam. I'd probably be terrible at that. Yeah, and I wouldn't be interested in it either. It's like I, I, always, I always try to do what I loved in life. You know, 
I always try to pursue my passions and what I'm interested in. And the byproduct of that, hopefully, is also, you know, a good living. But but my priority is to be happy and to enjoy what I do. And I can take a, a, an inordinate amount of stress, what people would call stress, I call fun, you know, like building a company, building multiple companies and, you know, all that is, for me, not stressful. It's it's a passion. And say that to my children too. I say, look, I don't care if you go to university or if you don't or what you do. I just want you to make sure that you do your best at what you choose to do and that you are in love with your livelihood and, and whatever it is that you choose to do. And for me, it's it's tech. And so I, I, I never had a question about whether I should go to university because it just wouldn't have added to me. I love the point about pressure being such a huge privilege. And, and if you think this way, like you see the world in a different way. But I just want to pick up what you said. So, you know, transferring that skill into earnings. I mean, I guess the Nintendo story, you know, taught you you've got a valuable skill. But at what stage did you transfer that skill into your own business that then generates earnings? Yeah, so my, my first earnings were sending letters off, you know, with code to magazines and they would print the, the code wow. you know, to teach people how to do a sprite routine or a sound or things like that. And, you know, that was money, but it wasn't going to pay the mortgage. And, and then, you know, when I got the job, you know, writing video games, proper industrial video games, then I had, you know, a proper career and I had money. So I did that for a couple of years and then I, I got a job in the south of France making a ton of money as a consultant programmer with a ridiculous job in a big company with loads of money. I hated it. It was boring, but I made loads of money and it didn't make me happy. But it was, it was the south of France. And I so I founded a company there and ultimately brought it to Mexico of all places. But what I discovered about myself there when I was probably 20 years old was that I, I had more than just programming technical skills. I, I had the ability to tell a story, to you know influence people, to, to sell a dream, to find an opportunity, to, to bring customers or senior people on the ride. You know, even though I was a young kid, I was able to get the trust of people to say, look, I can build that, I can solve that problem for you. And you know, so I I, I learned about myself that there's more to me than just the programmer and that I could actually tell a story and, and build a business around an idea that I would have and not just actually write the code for it, but actually create the, the strategy in the business and, and sell that to people. For me, that was the, that was a big fuse, the, the lighting of the fuse, because then I was confident. So I, I started a company, you know, it was in Mexico City largely. Uh, that was called Eland, and and in the end, I grew that over 12 years it took. But you know, the point is, I I got big big contracts with IBM, American Express, United Airlines, you know, all these giant big companies for a guy that's 20 to 25 years old during those during that phase. That's something that not a lot of people have, and and I do have it, and that 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 was an advantage for me that gave me a lot of confidence to always take those risks, you know, to never, never settle, you know, to always roll the dice, to, to bet on myself, to take my own money, bet on whatever plans that I'm doing. And that's the founder type of DNA, right? That, that, you know, there's a lot of us, but we're not that common. But I think there's still a huge difference between, you know, you taking that risk and figuring out that you can do more than programming and launching the business to then actually scaling the business. Like, how did you at this age manage to scale the business to the success it became? 
Well, the the you know that that first business wasn't that big. It was like 150 people. It was uh, 15 million euros of of. You well, know, that's pretty good. Yeah, but like in rel- relative to Car Trawler, the the business that I did after that, that was 250 million dollars of ARR and 650 people, and wow. really a worldwide business and, and, a, and a leader in its in its sector and even more so crushed everybody else that was really well i mean the main thing there was good timing it wasn't you know genius it was just good timing but we you know we executed really well and we were really really very well focused on you know on the plan and and, and doing it and i think that was a big success for me and that one was it felt like a winning horse that i jumped on and kept winning races and it just you couldn't stop winning, but I got, I got bored with it, you know? So, you know, so, so I should say to scale a business is a particular skill set that I, on my own, you know, don't have the, the, to make a business scalable. It's about the people that you bring onto your team. And it's about how you then work together. You know, I was either lucky or good, you know, I can't answer this for you, but I was either lucky or good at finding the right people and, and working well together with them to create the scaling but but scaling a business is a completely different problem for for a person like me than building the tech or getting the product right or selling the story any of that stuff. Scaling is almost like a management problem than anything else. Once you have your product perfected and your strategy is right and you you know your fundraising your your cash management is good, then you know the scaling part is kind of what I would say is the is the ugly difficult last stage of maturing a business. And, and I've been successful at that a, a couple of times. And now with Mana, um, we're, we're pre-scaling, but if I had to bet on a team that can do it, I'd definitely bet on my team because we uh, collectively, we've all built large, successful companies. And I prefer that than the risk of, of people that I wouldn't know that maybe haven't done it before. And, um, you know, but, but scaling is really, really, really hard, but incredibly enjoyable as well, because every, you know, gear change you do through the next 100 people, 500 people, you know, and revenue, 10 million, 50, 100. It's like a drug. I, I lose sleep at night with the excitement that I have in the progress of the business. You know, I genuinely lose sleep about about I'm thinking all the time. And and I just feel like I'm so lucky to be able to do something like this. What I find so incredibly uh, powerful listening to you is that I know a lot of people who started three, four companies, but they've not scaled these companies for a long time. Whereas you've done, I think, 12 years in the first company, 14 years in the, in the second one. That is pretty, pretty outstanding. And like, what at what stage did you decide to then sell did you hit some kind um, of barrier? Did you lose the interest? Like, what was the... Yeah, lost the interest. I mean, the, the first business uh, was with an old friend of mine. You know, he was 60 years old, different risk profile than me. And he kind of wanted to take some money off the table. I was bored, not not terribly bored, but like I knew that there's something, there's another project to do. And so, so it was an easy decision to sell that business. And the car trawler, again... The last six years of the 14, I, was, I wasn't bored. It was a great, great team of people and a great business, but it wasn't big enough. You know, that was a billion-dollar company, and I want to build a 10 or $100 billion company, and that was never going to become that. And so you look around and you say, well, you can get anyone to manage a company, you know, once it's 
at full full speed or or it's got momentum, you can bring in a management team, which is what we did. And that allowed me to sit up then on the board and, and relax and and think about other things to do. And kind of so I, you know, as I'm thinking about, I was doing some investing and I'm a terrible investor, you know, and I want to build, you know, definitely I didn't want to go up the, in, into the top floor and, and buy and sell other companies. I wanted to build from zero. I wanted to write the code. I wanted to hire the programmers. I wanted to design the thing. I wanted to raise the money. I want to do the whole thing. And if you look at the space that we're in with MANA, it's a multiple trillion dollar industry that hasn't been born yet. And I think, you know what, even, you know, even a moron could build a billion dollar company here if you get your timing right. And I just, you know, it, it was no question that I was done with car trawler because the passion wasn't there. And although I still love, you know, what we created together there, you know, I'm a builder. I, I build and I bring something to scale. And and there was an opportunity, timing wise and and product wise, to to do it. That I just, you know, it was clear clear decision for me. And I still want to understand a bit better. So you've done it for 12 years. You're doing it again for 14 years. What are kind of the the three things, two three reflections you had from the first business to make the second one, you know, 10 times better? Yeah, yeah. Good question. First business was bootstrapped and always profitable from day one and grew conservatively, as I said, about 15 million. And the, I made a mistake there. We should have taken on investment. We should have grown the business more quickly. We should have grown it faster and we should have sold it for more uh, because we didn't leverage it up. We didn't gear it up. That was an opportunity missed. But like, I don't regret it. It just, I wasn't experienced. There wasn't in Ireland, there, there, there's no such thing as VC. There barely is now. It's a small market where you know the, the real entrepreneurs build houses they don't build technology that was a mistake and and so when we went into you know growth mode and car trawler it was very obvious that once we were we were thrown off about five or six million in ebitda we we knew that we could bring in private equity could put some leverage into the business and take some cash off the table but also get that industrial kind of endorsement from a, from a big financial institution that also unlocked uh, what I would say perception problems that we would have as a small tech company in Ireland. Well, now we're suddenly, we've got this 100 million euro valuation and big airlines, big customers take us more seriously. So, so I learned that it's not enough to be an indigenous or an, or an indie tech company to have that big endorsement and a big balance sheet particularly in an enterprise SaaS uh, play is important because you eliminate risk. So I definitely did that better. And the other thing I did better was on people management. You know, I, I had a no focus whatsoever on people management in my first business, like 150, probably 130 of them were engineers, all in dark corners. Nobody talked to anyone. We just writing code. And, and it was, you know, a, a joy if you're a programmer, but it, the heart isn't beating. And in Car Trawler, we created a wonderful place to build a career, a brand and, and values that we live by that, that really was a tailwind in, in creating the business. And it also made me personally happier. You know, we've, you know, personally, I've created four or 5,000 jobs through that business that makes me very proud. And, and those are jobs that people got a lot out of, not just the salary, but they learned a lot. They grew a lot personally. Some of them have started their own companies. And that I didn't do the first time, did really well in Car Trawler. 
And when I think about Mana now, we're still at crazy stage and we're still, we're really a rocket that, you know, burning the engines as hard as we can. Um, but soon we'll be, like we're 75 people now, we'll probably be a couple of hundred people in the next 12 to 18 months. And then we'll be really quickly going to thousands and, and even tens of thousands of people as we scale across Europe and the rest of the world. So I really think a lot about, you know, how to do that really well so that when they write the book about us, I'm not the asshole, you know, that, that people, you know, my best result is that, you know, I've created something that people are proud of all, you know, the people that work there are proud of. And that sounds like a cliche, but it's not, it, it actually, it's part of my own personal measurement of the end result is, you know, it's not a smash and grab is not really what I want. I want to really build something that changes the world and in a good way, both in terms of financial return, but also the careers and that it creates inside it. So, so I, I do think that I'm better now than I ever have been. And, and I bring forward those lessons that I'm going to implement in Mana. Yeah, I love that focus on purpose. Um, at Gusto, our purpose is to focus, well, to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet. So I, I totally relate to what you just um, described. And you mentioned you had this industrial endorsement, you brought private equity in. What kind of learnings did it unlock in you? All of a sudden you're having this board, you know, what was positive, what was constraining? Yeah, so in the, in the private equity world, well, having a, board, having a private equity board isn't difficult once you're growing and once your margin is continuing to expand. So I, I, I'm fortunate that, you know, we were, we were in a, a good business that was just really always very attractive. And, and so our board were largely happy, content and, and not particularly involved. And, and, but, and, and similarly, I don't think I don't think we really needed the steering that a board would usually provide or, or the governance because we kind of, we were all in agreement with what the plan was and we were just, you know, growth, 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 and, 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 but also conscious of margin. So it was kind of a financial governance in the business that it, it didn't change anything for me. It didn't have any constraints or, and, but similarly it didn't add any, you know, real value beyond the, the cash, that we took out of the business and the balance sheet, you know, support that we had. But towards the latter years, you know, particularly around when COVID kicked off, the business, you know, then I'm, I was on the board. I wasn't, you know, in an executive capacity. And, and there, that business, like any other business, is under pressure. It's a travel technology business. When COVID happens, you know, your revenue goes out the door, your cash goes out the door, and you see a different view of things. And, and I've had to cut costs before we cut costs in car trawler we cut costs in my business before that you know and i've been i've been there during the ugly part so i know what it's not always a bed of roses and it, it does get difficult but what i would say is that i'm a very collaborative person so working with a board of new people or or different people to me is never hard for me and it's something you know that i always to be honest with you, i always seek out like an and in mana you know, I have a board in man as well, and it, 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 it's very additive. And in fact, pretty much all of our, you know, our main investors on our board, I would have tons of conversations with them outside of the board to kind of bounce my thinking against or, you know, rough idea kind of challenges. So I'm collaborative. And I think that helps if you're not a collaborative person by nature, it's probably more difficult to work with a board if things aren't going well, but, but I am. So, you know, it's not a problem for me. That makes perfect sense. 
And we talked so much about success and you've had so much um, success in your career and, you know, you've gained huge confidence. Can you tell me a story about failing at something? <laughs> you must you must have failed before and learned from it. Um, yeah, I'm a failed investor. I'm a terrible investor. So <laughs> I, I did a load of investing, you know, angel investing, writing checks, you know, to companies that I, I thought, you know, were good and that I loved the founders. But no diligence whatsoever and you know really didn't do my work properly on challenging my own thinking on things and you know is it a failure no because i didn't just like when you go into casino you, you go in with the intent of having fun and and with a limit on how much money you want to lose when i was you know investing i still occasionally invest but when i was really doing a lot of investing i was doing it with the full knowledge that these are really you know unlikely to to win if they do win they might be big but you know there's a high chance of failure it's not i don't personally rue it or regret it and, and wish i had that you know whatever millions of dollars back not not at all but did i learn anything no <laughs> i didn't learn anything i didn't become better and i you know maybe i helped a bunch of companies to get a bit more liquidity other than that it was a waste of time. So that, so therefore I have to call that as a failure. Yeah. And that my football career, are my two biggest failures. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you can't do everything at the same time, but sounds, sounds like you're trying hard. It's pretty amazing. Let's talk about Mana. So you mentioned you guys are 75 people. You raised some VC funding. You've done it for three years, you know, multi-trillion market opportunity. I totally agree. But when and why will the drone industry hit the inflection point to really take off? So, so like we've kind of we've we've had a, a a feeling always since the you know, nearly three years ago when we started the business that the inflection point is it's kind of now, but but the scale starts to happen at the start of 2023. And from the very start of the business, that's kind of what we've planned for. And that's the way it's turning out. It's certainly in Europe, European regulators, you know, governed by IASA, have super clear timeline and processes around everything you need to do to be regulated. So I, I say it with a lot more confidence now in the timeline, but with great clarity, I think the industry now can be confidently expecting to scale end of 22, start of 23. And What scale means is, like today, MANA has a European-wide license. And the, what we do in, in the west coast of Ireland, in the town where we operate, and soon on the east coast, in another town of the 40,000 people, what we do there, we're, we're now legally allowed to do that anywhere in Europe that we choose to. But we do it with a constrained business model that wouldn't be smart to scale. It'd be difficult to scale. So the next phase of that is what's called type certification or airworthiness certification. And we have probably about another 12 months of work to do in that. And we therefore will be in a position to scale with profitable unit economics in the next 12 months. And we'll technically be allowed to do that from roughly the end of 2022 onwards. And I, I also, this is kind of backed up by the inbounds I get from very large firms now, you know, it's it's non-stop firms that missed out on our Series A 
that are coming into me now looking, you know, when are we raising again? They, they believe now that time has come. So I think there's a consensus that I feel is building, has built largely, but is, is gaining momentum that it's going to start happening. And people are looking around for horses to back. And there aren't many. There's us, there's Alphabet, you know, Wing, there's Zipline. And really there, there aren't any other companies that have a team and readiness to, to get the scale. So it's unusual. And then the other nice thing, or the hard thing and the nice thing about what we're doing is the latency between starting a business and getting to scale here is at least three years. When the regulation kicks in, to build an aircraft that's reliable enough to fly a million flights a day or even 10 million flights a day and to get that certified and to get manufacturing lined up, those things take a lot of money and a lot of elapsed time. And so we're faced with an opportunity where the beginning of 2023 will probably be the only horse that's ready to scale in this industry. And I don't see anyone else yet that, that, that's coming even close to what we're doing. So that's exciting. And, and if we're wrong by a year or, or whatever, we have plenty of cash in the business now, we can ride that out. And, and if anything, we'll probably raise more cash over the next six to 12 months and go even faster. Bobby, what's your bank account? Can I invest? No, I'm, I'm just joking. But I mean, I, I totally agree. It sounds hugely promising. It's really, really fascinating how the regulatory framework then becomes the mode in the early years of scaling, potentially uh, giving you a huge advantage. Talk me through kind of the technology side, like how mature is the technology? What tech problems do you still need to solve? Or is this entirely down to regulatory challenges? Yeah, pretty pretty much it is. Like we're we're flying now fully autonomously. The aircraft flies in horrible wind, you know, horrible weather. It performs beautifully. We have far better adoption than row-based delivery already. We have 35% of the homes that we operate in are using the service on a repeat basis. We have just in terms of customer experience, product, all of that is really, really complete. What's not complete is we've only done 50, about 55,000 flights now, and we won't be ready to scale until we've got about a million flights on the clock. And so the next you know, 12 months for us are about ramping up test flights and, and just looking for those edge cases of where things can go wrong and, and where we haven't got things perfectly right. But it's not, it's not like if you look at the autonomous driving industry where they've gotten 99% of the way, but the other 1% may never be finished. Unlike our, our space, we've finished now the product. It works, it's ready, and, but it hasn't been tested yet at scale. So, so that's the next part of this for us. And it's another part of the mode because in order to be ready to scale, you actually have to show quite a lot of volume on the clock before you're confident that you have the product ready. So, so if that's akin to... If you're producing a car, a new car, think of a Tesla, at what point do you say the car is perfect? Let's make 50,000 of these cars or 200,000 of these cars. And you might have to recall them all. You might have you know, made a mistake. You might not have it right. So for us, there's a point in time, probably in about 12 months, where we think nothing more needs to change. And now we start really manufacturing these aircraft so that by the time we're ready to scale, we probably have 20, 30, 40,000 aircraft ready to go. So, so that's the phase we're in. All of the difficult technical problems we've, we've already solved. 
And so let's let's talk kind of about the commercial model, if that's okay. Like you mentioned unit economics, you talked about 35% of homes um, you operate in um, already use you all the time. How are you thinking about commercializing it? So it sounds like you're going B2B rather than B2C. You're not licensing drones. You're pretty much offering drone delivery. What, what's kind of the go-to-market plan? Yeah, well, actually, I'd be honest, and, and there's still parts of that that we haven't finished you know, deciding on. So, so mainly we're drone delivery as a service. So we operate the aircraft, fly from the roof of our partners. So if you look in Ireland, we actually fly from the roof of Tesco. We have a dark kitchen on the roof. We have some brands, like we have a deal with Coca-Cola. We have a deal with um, Samsung and Unilever. And, and there we we sell their products and we fly their products. So that's a kind of a hybrid B2C or, or like a gorillas or a GoPuff type model where we have a, you know, a small subset of brands that we sell and deliver. Um, but mainly we're, we're, we want to be a B2B. We want to be the infrastructure layer. So, so that last mile, and we, we want to power everybody, like almost like an arms dealer. We want to be the one producing and selling the arms and let everyone else compete uh, on the field. So we see ourselves as a 100% replacement for the road in suburban communities. That means we will power all of the restaurants, all of the bookshops, the butcher, the fishmonger, the big supermarket, the small convenience store. We want to power them all, but with a centralized model where there is no more retail footprint and everything is transacted online and arrives in less than five minutes from transaction. So that's our kind of product promise. And then the business model is, is really straightforward. We're transactional. So we charge our business partners a transaction fee per delivery. And, and we think that fits well with what their current systems are, where they like a big food platform. Now it costs between six and nine US dollars to operate a road-based delivery. And we can do that a lot cheaper and with a far better customer experience and with a scalable model that involves robots, not people. Uh, so that that's kind of loosely what the plan is to go to market you know, product looks like, but at scale and in 10 years time, our vision is that there is no more road-based delivery, that nearly all products are centralized in suburban communities. And all of those typically offline businesses become online businesses, transacted online and consumers purchasing patterns become more frequent, more atomic or more granular and, and are much more uh, directed. So in other words, Instead of going out every week to get, you know, three meals worth of food you prepare in your kitchen, you're going to decide at 5 p.m. what you're going to cook. You're going to order the broccoli, the cabbage, the meat, whatever it is, and you're going to get it in five minutes from us. And then you're going to prepare your meal. And we think that's that behavior change will come very, very quickly once we're ubiquitous. And so our business model will evolve. We'll we'll will become more and more important to our vendor partners and our communities that we serve. And, and of course, there's subscription model evolution that, that might happen. We don't know. And, but one thing we do know is that already in, in the town we're in with 10,000 people, behavior has changed. There is no more row-based delivery in this town. People are ordering things that you never in a million years would have dreamt that they would order for delivery they're doing now. They routinely order coffee, hot coffee. You see orders of one head of broccoli, you know, nappy cream. 
you know, instant orders that are high utility or high frequency. So we already see behavior changing. And, and so it'd be difficult to, to say what the business model will be like in 10 years. We want to change the world first and then figure out what the right way to charge it is. Makes sense. Um, and I love the centralization of retail point. The env environmental gains you'll see will be absolutely amazing, which I think is what people today don't understand. What they see is the packaging, but they don't understand all the wastage of operating these individual retail units. So you should definitely become a B Corp or, or make that part of the mission. That feels like a huge win for society. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's it like food waste, but also CO2 produced by using yeah. the roads, you know, just traffic congestion. There's all sorts of, you know, things that, that we just fix. So you are becoming the arms dealer in an arms race. You mentioned high utility, high frequency items. But just, just for everyone listening who hasn't seen many drones operate and deliver stuff, how big is the drone? What types of products are kind of ideal for drone? Also, I guess, from an AOV point, you know, what, what do you need to charge to make it viable? Yeah. So our, our current design is it's about a meter and a half tip to tip. Uh, so, it's, so prop to prop. It carries three kilos of 30,000 cubic centimeters of volume. And um, so that's hard to assess, but it's like two pretty large shoe boxes on top of each other and three kilos. Now that's our current design and that's, it's kind of 95% of the SKUs that would be in a, a large supermarket. It's a, you know, burger and fry, like fast food meal for four or five people. It's, it's about 10 coffees. Like we today we routinely get, get orders for six to 10 coffees in one delivery. So it's kind of, it's not really a constraint. There are certain things you'll see certain takeaway food orders, certainly that'll go to five and six kilos uh, that we just break up into two flights instead of one. Uh, and you'll certainly, if you, if you think in a traditional way and you think about supermarkets, then you'll, you'll struggle to understand why we work because the big bag of groceries doesn't fit. But, but our point here is that you don't need to do that anymore. You can literally think of drone delivery as an extension of your arm that's three miles long that you can reach onto every shelf and have the thing in your hand in five minutes. So, so we, we don't think that the aircraft needs to be much bigger than it is. However, you know, later on, we, we of course, will build larger aircraft and smaller aircraft for different use cases. But the one we have now, three kilo, 30,000 cubic centimeters, will solve all problems or most problems. And then if you think about the cost base, our only cost to operate a flight is the battery depreciation, the motor depreciation, and the person that loads the cargo. And so battery depreciation, motor depreciation are the kind of, you know, sub 50 cents type of cost for, for a delivery. And then the person operating the cargo bay, so that's someone that takes the bag from the vendor, puts it on the aircraft, We're already already doing 15 to 20 deliveries per person per hour with that system. So if you think about traditional road-based delivery, where most platforms are getting between two and two and a half deliveries per person per hour, we're getting 15 to 20 already, and we'll, we'll actually increase that. So it's an order of magnitude cheaper using people on the road. 15 to 20 is pretty incredible. I guess when you talk to people on the street, you know, people naively imagine this future world where the sky is dark and you've got drones everywhere. 
is there such thing as peak drone utilization? Like what's the, what's the cap capacity to have drones in the sky? Yeah, we do. We, we get asked that. So we've no complaints out of the 10,000 people, but we have questions and the questions are, what about the wildlife and what about my sky? It's like kind of like the SpaceX thing with all these satellites in the sky. I'm not going to be able to see the stars. Well, well actually we run this one town, you know, 10,000 people with two aircraft. And they're small, you know, they fly 50, 60 meters. So it's actually not an issue. Now at peak, when we grow like forward wind 10 years, when there is no more road based delivery and it's all drones and people are using them far more frequently. Yes. You're going to see drones in the sky, but, but it's not, uh, it, the skies won't be crowded. And certainly I, I, I think that there's a valid concern about that, but It's not based on data. It's just the, an unfounded, you know, sense of the unknown. And if you model peak demand today in a suburban town with population density of about 5,000 people per square kilometer, and you map that on and you triple that demand because we think people will use this a lot more than, you know, uh, road-based delivery, then you still get to less than one-tenth of a percent of the airspace being used. So I don't think it's a problem. And I mean, at Gusto, every single time you buy a Gusto meal, you take 23% of CO2 emissions out of the system uh, versus the equivalent supermarket shop, you know, given centralization topics and so on. Have you done a similar study? So you, you've got drones, drones in a 10,000 people city, no more cars on the street. Like there must be such a huge gain. Yeah, there is. It's, it's a difficult one to assess because, you know, like we obviously produce no CO2. We can source our electricity from renewable sources that we use to charge the battery. So, you know, other than the actual manufacture of the aircraft, you know, we're zero CO2. But then you say, okay, yeah, but what about the manufacturing of the aircraft? Well, our answer to that is one of our aircraft, you know, just one of our little aircrafts already done over 10,000 deliveries. And we think actually that that aircraft will do 100,000 deliveries. And, and so that's the calculation. The average journey is about four kilometers burning, you know, in a, in a vehicle. So it's a hundred thousand times four kilometers, you know, half a million kilometers saved in CO2. So it's, it's enormous. The wind is enormous. And then, you know, that's just pure, you know, energy or fossil fuels. The other, the other aspect of it is food waste. And as you know, 30% more of food purchased is, is thrown in the trash. And we think that by enabling a more granular an instant purchasing of food, people will buy a lot less food, but much more frequently. So they won't waste all of that food. And we, we think that's absolutely enormous. And then the last part is food shouldn't need to travel as much. So this big benefit that, you know, centralized buying and then distribution doesn't need to happen anymore. And we think that local producers can now, because we really translate a physical producer and seller of goods into an online business, We think that those categories can grow a lot. So the, the locals can make the cakes, make the donuts, make the meat. You know, it can all happen locally and therefore the distances travel can go away as well. So we, it, it's impossible to model what those numbers look like. We have, as part of our deck, made an attempt at that. And it, it's, only to, it, it's only to be quite confident knowing that we're having a huge impact, but to measure it uh, is less easy. Yeah, but I think it's super, super powerful. And just Bobby, as a last question, I've got huge confidence in you, the business. I'm excited by your excitement. 
that you will build such an amazing, incredible business over the next 10 years. But explain why you will win against Google. And I have no doubt you will, but you know, you've got deep-pocketed <laughs> competitors that focus on 400 yeah. things. Like why, why are you winning? What's the secret sauce? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I love the Google guys. I think they're a great team. They have a great product and you know, they have a great vision and, and I agree with everything about them. So huge amount of respect for them. Why we will win? Well, well, two, two reasons. We think we're a more commercially focused team. In the end, we wake up every morning excited about building a 10 billion, if not a hundred billion dollar company. And we, we think that the, the folks in Google don't have that pressure or that mission. I think they're part of a much bigger entity that, that it just makes things different. And, you know, I think they will be successful if they, if they can keep going. I think they can be successful, but they're not going to threaten us. In, in, at the end of the day, I think big brands, very important big brands, think about strategy a lot. And the question will come down to how do you feel, you know, you're one of the top brands in the world. How do you feel about all of your customers going through Google now instead of brand direct? And the difference with us versus a Google or an Amazon even is that you retain control of your brand and they're still your customers. They're not our customers. And I think that's very important. So it's a, it's a kind of a, it's the nature of what we are versus what Google are. It's, it's not a competitive thing. It's just we're different and we're more compatible with being an arms dealer if you were buying your arms from another army, let's just say. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's kind of the reason. But also, you know, we're not smarter than they are. They're probably smarter than we are, actually. But we're very, very commercial team. Strong enough technically, but, but what, what will make this happen is the ability to adapt, to pivot, to move fast. It's not really about having all those PhDs in aeronautical engineering yeah, and look, Bobby, thank you so much for sharing the journey. I really, really hope you resist the temptation to sell out too soon. No doubt offers will fly in uh, en masse in 2023, the latest. Um, but yeah, I wish you all the success in the world. It sounds amazing. Thank you for joining. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Nemo.